0: You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Morning, church. Morning. Doing things a little different today. Gonna to front load the sermon. It's just a two hour sermon, I'm just kidding. One song is all we have time for. Uh, no. We're going to do things a little backwards today. We're going to start out in the word, and then we're going to end out our time in worship and response, a little, little kind of backwards to how we normally do it, but I think it'll be good for us. So, I am so excited to get into this text this morning. We are continuing our study of Mark. Today we're going to be finishing out Mark chapter 8. You can go ahead and turn there if you'd like to. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, we have house Bibles in the end of each row. You can just give a look down your row and someone will pass one to you. Um, We really, really value access to the Word of God. and So if you don't have a Bible, please, please, please grab one of those and take it home. Or even better yet, come talk to one of our pastors and we'll we'll buy you one with less coffee states on it. But uh, we, we really value that. So... Grab your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8. I am I'm stoked to get into this passage today. This is one of the most famous passages in the Gospels. These are some of the words of Jesus that are most known and most memorable and dare we say most cliche within the Christian world. And so I am really excited for us to talk about some of those coffee mug type verses. you know what I'm talking about like you go into the Christian bookstore. And there's like a picture of a sunset and kind of this like cursive font. You know what I'm talking about. You're like, I have that in my house right now. I'm so excited for us to point to some of these verses and actually humble ourselves enough to let them bite us. So we're talking today about Christ's words of picking up your cross and following after him. And Christ's words of of loving the world and losing your soul. In Peter's confession of Christ, you are the Messiah. We're going to talk about some of those phrases today. And man, I just do not want us to miss this. I do not want us to roll over the top of these words because they're so familiar and they're so poetic and they're so beautiful and then take their sharpness away. Because, beloved, the teaching of Jesus today for us here right now in this room is meant to bite us. It's meant to pierce our calloused hearts. It's meant to push through our comfort and our walls and our armor and our strength and bite us right in our idolatry. And so let's, let's allow that to happen this morning. Can we, can we once more, can we just pray really quick before we read this text? Is that okay? Yeah. Jesus, we ask specifically that your word today would be real and alive and present to us. God, do not allow us Do not allow us to take your word today and and think of it as something for someone else somewhere else. But God, speak to us today through your word. Speak truth to us, even truth that is painful. God, we know that the wounds of a friend are faithful and you have called us friend. And so God, we ask that your word today would cut us where we need to be cut. And that we would leave today having having met with you, and having heard from you. And God, may we leave today allowing our hearts to be changed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're picking up in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. I'm going to read for us uh, the 27th verse of the 8th chapter of the Gospel, according to Mark, tells us this. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And this is the word of the Lord. So, let me put us in context really quick, just in case you haven't been with us over the last several weeks. So, the Gospel of Mark, we've been in Mark for a long minute now. uh, And what's been going on so far is that we've seen Jesus come on the scene as kind of this fresh voice in this part of Israel called Galilee. Or really, I should say Palestine, because remember, this is conquered Israel under Roman dominion. And so Jesus has come on the scene, traveling around this region called Galilee, the northern part of Palestine around this little inland sea, and this Jewish rabbi is traveling from village to village, doing miracles and preaching this really simple message. You see, uh, in in the first chapter of Mark, Jesus' really simple message, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the gospel. The time has come. God is doing something new. You can be a part of it. You need to change. You need to trust me. This is Jesus' message. God is doing something new. You can be a part of it. There's invitation and challenge. And he he brings this message around the region. He backs it up by doing miraculous works. He heals people. He forgives sins. He makes the unclean clean. He gives sight to the blind. All these different things over and over. And this has basically been the story for us up to this point. As he he builds a massive following because of doing these miracles, he begins to expound on his teaching. And Jesus' method of expounding on his teaching is to begin to talk about this thing that he's announced. Where the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he begins to talk about this kingdom and say things like, well, the kingdom is like this. And he uses metaphors and similes and word pictures, right? You remember this in Mark chapter four, where he starts comparing the kingdom to things like a guy breaking into a house and a farmer sowing seed in a field and a mustard shrub growing up large enough to, to hold birds' nests. He uses these striking images to say, yeah, I'm announcing this, thing called the kingdom and the kingdom is like this and every time he would teach this he would use this really provocative language where he would essentially say listen if your ears and your eyes are open you'll know what I'm talking about which is really kind of a bummer if you're the guy standing there going now I do not get that mustard seed thing and Jesus is like what? Well, I don't know what to tell you man open eyes open ears And you're just like, okay, all right. But that's that's what happens. Jesus, he teaches in this mysterious way. And actually, specifically, he tells his disciples, I'm doing this on purpose. I'm, I'm doing this on purpose. I'm speaking in a way that is vague and indirect and mysterious because I want to see people engage this. I want want to see, we need to know whose eyes are open and whose eyes are closed and whose ears are open and whose ears are closed. And as Mark progresses, this becomes increasingly obvious because the religious leaders and the Jewish people who he's ministering to, it becomes more and more apparent that they're there and they want to see Jesus' miracles and they want to hear his teaching, but their eyes are closed and their ears are closed. It becomes really obvious really quick and it builds up this tension to the point where the religious leaders basically say, this is unacceptable, we've got to kill this guy. And really early on, they begin plotting and setting the stage to murder Jesus. And then we see that Jesus, his own disciples, he's he's taking them aside and explaining this teaching and giving context to this kingdom work he's doing and these miracles. And yet, even they have closed eyes and closed ears. And as Jesus does amazing things like calming storms and and, and, and raising and bringing sight back to the blind and uh, freeing a demoniac from a legion of demons. As Jesus does these things, they look at him and just go, Man, I don't get this. Who is this? What is this guy's deal? It it terrifies them. Rather than drawing them to the truth of Jesus' Messiahship and Jesus' divinity, it terrifies them. And, And then we see, and this has been the last section we've been in, where Jesus breaks from his normal pattern and begins ministering and serving and loving Gentiles. He steps outside of the Jewish area and he goes to places like Tyre and Sidon and Decapolis and there he meets people who are eager to hear his word. He meets people who, who give up their time and, their, and and all of a sudden the mob changes from, man, these people don't really know what's going on and they're just kind of selfish and, and Jesus is loving and serving them but they don't really get it to oh Jesus loves these people and he's connecting with them and And these people are thirsty for the kingdom. And you see this strange image where the people who were closest to God, who had most access to His revelation and His truth, somehow, they're the ones with closed eyes and closed ears. And the people who are farthest from God are the people with open eyes and open ears. What a strange image Mark has given us. And and we see... Jesus, I love this part, because this is, this is just Mark. With Jesus, Mark reminds us of two specific miracles of Jesus while he's ministering to the, to the uh, Gentiles, where he takes a deaf man and he opens his ears so that he can hear, and he takes a blind man and he opens his eyes so that he can see. Right, like directly connecting back to this imagery, there's this idea that, man, something happens. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more your heart is open to him something happens, and what he's doing begins to click. And that all kind of comes together in our passage today. They take one more journey to one more Gentile region. They head up to Caesarea Philippi. Actually, I think I have a map to show you guys that's a little more readable. Do we have it? Is there a picture of it? I'm not going to call out you by name, because you already got called out once by name, today. Oh, <laughs> dang it, sorry. <laughs> so, what well, you can see here, this is way too tiny, I'm sorry. Uh, on the top of the map, you see that little bitty inland sea, that's the Sea of Galilee. Jesus' ministry has been mostly in that region. Caesarea Philippi is that little dot almost all the way at the top there. And so Jesus is heading up there to this place called Caesarea Philippi, which is kind of the capital of, of um, one of... so. Palestine, was, at the time of Jesus' birth, was ruled by one King Herod, and after that King Herod died, to give you the really short version, uh, his kids were kind of terrible, and so rather than letting one of them rule the whole kingdom, they divided it up, and like, hey, you, can handle, you can handle this, but just was like a smaller version. And so, uh, this top section is the, the section given to Herod's son, Philip, right? Philip the Tetrarch, you'll see him called in the New Testament, so that's the section he rules, and Caesarea Philippi is kind of his capital city, and not to get too far down the rabbit hole, but traditionally speaking, this is a city that Jewish people don't have a lot of fondness for, and this is a very Gentile region, and there's a bunch of stuff going into that, but really at this point, can we just say, is anyone actually surprised by that? I mean, I feel like that's kind of the recurring theme, is that Jews don't like people. <laughs> At least in this setting, it's kind of strange, basically, like every city outside their region, they're like, we have bad beef with them, we don't like them, we have a history with them. It kind of reminds me of American suburbanites, but uh, I don't know what, uh, what the connection is there. So, Jesus is heading up to this region, while he's on the road, heading to this city, he asks his followers this question, right? Hey, who do people say that I am? Now... There's some strangeness socially to that, that I don't, I don't want to spend too much time here, but it is important to note that traditionally, rabbis did not ask their students specific questions. They didn't initiate questions. Instead, they would wait for the disciples to ask questions, and they would respond with further digging questions, but Jesus opens the discussion with this question, hey, what say about me who do people say that I am? And, and really quick, I just want to say this like Jesus is a different kind of rabbi. and so he doesn't, he doesn't choose to follow those rules. He chooses to engage his disciples in the way their hearts actually need that morning. And so he says, hey, who do people say that I am? And they give these kind of standard answers we've already heard. Well, some say you're Elijah resurrected, and some say you're John the Baptist, and some say you're one of the new prophets. And You can kind of imagine Jesus going, yeah, yeah, that's cool. But what about you guys? Who do you think I am? Now this is, I love this, right? Because he, he opens the discussion in a way that's really accessible, but then he just zeroes it in. What about you guys? Who do you think I am? He doesn't leave them the option of just sitting terrified in the boat going, who is this anymore? No, Jesus pushes his disciples and he says, who do you think I am? Tell me. You've been with me now. You've seen me. You've heard me teach. You've sat with me while I've explained things. You have seen this ministry from the beginning till now. Who do you think I am? And Peter responds for the whole group. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the chosen, anointed one of God. That's what that word means. The anointed one. The chosen one. You are God's man for his people. Hmm. Peter says, you are the Christ. And what I love about this is that Jesus is like, cool, just checking. Don't tell anyone. And then he starts teaching them about what that means. There's something so interesting about this that when Peter makes this confession, when when Peter lets Jesus know, hey, we're on the same page. We know who you are. We know who you are. Jesus flips a switch, and he begins to speak to them plainly. He begins to just bluntly say, cool, you know who I am. Here's what you don't know. The Messiah is going to suffer and going to die. The religious leaders are going to totally reject him. He's going to be totally disconnected from the leadership, the spiritual leadership of the people. He's going to be handed over to suffer and die. And three days later, he'll raise again. Hmm. Now, I think... For a lot of us, maybe maybe we've heard this sort of thing taught on before, but at an initial reading, especially from our perspective as post-cross Christians, right, Peter's response is so strange. Right? Like Jesus says, Hey, do you know who I am? And Peter's like, Yes, you're you're the Messiah, and Jesus is like, That's awesome, this is what the Messiah does. And Peter pulls him aside and begins to rebuke him. Now, I I don't want to overemphasize this, but the word Mark chooses to use here for rebuke is the same word that Jesus uses when he rebukes demons. So this isn't like a lighthearted, like, "Hey Jesus, could you explain that to me?" This is Peter pulling Jesus aside and being like, "What the heck are you saying? That is not how that works. You can't say that to." This is Peter exerting authority over Jesus, and I love the scene, right? Because remember, they're walking. They're literally walking down the road. And as Peter is just ripping into Jesus, Jesus looks back and sees the other disciples and is like, alright, we're going to take care of this real quick. Get behind me, Satan. Strong words, right? Get behind me, Satan. Your mind is set on the things of this world and not the things of God. That's a really intense way of saying, you have no clue what you're talking about, so step down. Right? Right? He shoots down Peter. You have missed this. Step back, get in your place. You need to listen to me and you need to learn. The Messiah is not who you think he is. He's me. That's not what you think it is. And the reason is simply this: the Jews of this day are eagerly awaiting the coming of the Messiah. The the scriptures have been talking about the coming of God's anointed one for hundreds of years. And this idea of God anointing a special person to raise up and lead his people to freedom is is built into the scriptures from from the very beginning, over and over and over. We see God appointing leaders as as anointed, set-apart, chosen leaders to free God's people from oppression. The entire book of Judges is basically how to not be the Messiah. Uh, but, but it's over and over and over examples of God's people being oppressed and God anointing and choosing a specific person to bring freedom to God's people. And we see that throughout the entire Old Testament. And so God's people now, enslaved in their own land, living essentially as serfs, starving and, and longing for freedom and longing for independence, of course... They know what the Messiah is. They know who what the Christ is. The Christ is God's anointed man. He's a judge. He's a prophet. He's a king. He rallies the people together, and they raise up arms, and they cast off their oppressors, and they stand up and say, look at us. We are Israel. We are God's chosen people. We can stand on our own, and the world has to look at us and acknowledge how powerful God is, because this has been their story as a people for thousands of years. When things get bad, they call upon their God and he sends a savior who frees them and establishes them as a people. And in that establishment of a people God is proclaimed. This is the story they lived in over and over and over, this is the story that, that, that happened even even like in the extra biblical times, even under Roman rule, we see this idea. You can read historically about the Maccabees and how they freed Jerusalem from Roman oppression for a season. This is something that is deep in the psyche of these people. God will free us. He will send someone who will unite the people and we will stand up and cast off our oppressors and we will be God's people again. And so, when Peter says this to Christ, when he, when he confesses this to Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You can feel the electricity go through the crack. Just, whew. God's doing it. God's, God's bringing His kingdom. He's he's going to free us. He's going to break the oppression. We're, We're going to stand on our own again. And Jesus immediately just says, okay, you're right, but you're wrong. The Messiah, the Son of Man, God's anointed one, He won't unify God's people. He'll be rejected by the spiritual leaders. He won't draw all the elders and all the chiefs and everyone together. He'll divide them. And they'll reject him. And they'll beat him and humiliate him and kill him. (laughs) Three days later, he'll raise from the dead. So when you think about Peter's rebuke of Jesus, it makes total sense. Because this moment in Mark of Peter saying, you're the Messiah. This is a turning point in the whole book of Mark. This is... This is like a transatlantic shift in the tone of the book. Up until this point, Jesus has been saying over and over and over, who has eyes to see? Who has ears to hear? And here for the first time, we see Peter with eyes to see. You're You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And everything switches in the pace, the setting, the tone, the purpose. They know. They can see. But what they see is not actually right. So you look back, I love this, that, that Mark sets it up this way. This story immediately previous to us when Jesus heals a blind man. What I think is so interesting about that story, first off, is Jesus spits in a guy's eyeballs, which is super gross. But <laughs> second off, Jesus heals a guy in two stages. You know, you ever notice that? You ever read that story and you're like, Jesus, you're Jesus. <laughs> you could have just healed him. Why the extra steps? Because he heals the guy, and he goes, do you see anything and the guy? goes, yeah, I can see, but everyone looks like trees walking around. Everyone's not trees, are they? And Jesus is like, no, no, no. And then he heals them all the way, and then he can see clearly. So what we see here is that the disciples' eyes are open. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. But they see him as a tree walking around. Their eyes are open, but the vision isn't clear. And so Jesus comes and begins this clarifying teaching. Now let me, let me help you see with clarity what you now see in fuzziness. And they do not like it. They push back on it. I don't want that. That's not right. That's not what we've been taught. That's not what we've heard in our, in our stories in our church. That can't possibly be right. And Jesus says, shut up and sit down. You need to hear this. This is the truth. And then he says these really strong words. You're not thinking about things the way God thinks about things. You're thinking about things the way man thinks about things. You're stuck in this world. Your vision is limited. It's here. But God is doing something eternal. So then he says, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross. Follow after me. Give up your life. Give up this world so you can gain your soul. Do not be ashamed of me and this Messiahship that I bring, but proudly embrace it. This is the message Jesus gives here. You want to follow me? You You want to be part of this historical group of people that follows after the Christ? Cool. Here's what it's going to look like. I'm going to divide our people. I'm going to be humiliated and unjustly killed. So if you want to be a part of that, go ahead and pick up your cross. We can go there together. This is what Jesus teaches them. You want to follow after me? You're ready to die. And and again, I want to push on this. this. This phrase where Jesus says, pick up your cross daily and follow after me. As, as Christians on the other side of the cross, as Christians with thousands of years of history with religious imagery, that's such a beautiful phrase, right? Like, we think of crosses and we think of decorative things hanging on the wall and jewelry that baseball players wear. And we we, we think of tattoos, right? Like, we think of art. But that's not what this means, these people have no concept of what Jesus is talking about right now. When he says this, he's talking about being brutally tortured and murdered by their oppressors. Here's I, I, I want to I put it this way, guys. Their understanding of the Messiah is you will be strong and you will help us be strong and we will cast off our oppressors and we will stand up in our strength And that will show how good God is. We will win against the bad guys. And Jesus says, actually, to follow after me is to let the bad guys win. And to experience the worst they have to offer. And to just receive that. Because in that, is what actual victory is. That's so backwards. It so breaks our understanding of how the world works. These are oppressed and hurting and longing people saying, God, please free us. These Romans are they're too weighty, they're too heavy. They, they, they desecrate you and blaspheme you and they, and they torture us and the you. God, free us. And Jesus says, I am him. I am the chosen one. I'm the Messiah here to free you. Here's how I'm going to do it. They're going to brutally murder and kill me just like they've been doing to you. What? What does that even mean? How, how could they possibly, you know what I mean? Like, how could these guys possibly process that in the moment? Saying, You are the Christ, and Jesus going, Exactly, here's what that looks like. Nothing what you think. And I love this. I love where the passage ends. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here today who will not taste death. Until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power, it's funny because a lot of people have held on to this passage and a couple like it and said, "Oh, Jesus thought he would return in the disciples' lifetime." That's and in the early church, by the way, did think that they did think that Christ's return would be really, really imminent. But that's not at all what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is, "You are longing, you are longing for God's kingdom to come." With power and swords and chariots and defeat and army. Here's what I'm going to tell you. We're going to lose. We're going to lose miserably. And I'm going to be publicly, unjustly beaten and murdered and killed. But in that, you will see the kingdom come in power. You will see the power of the kingdom in what looks like defeat in what looks like loss, and what looks like death, you will see the kingdom come in power. And beloved, we know what happens. We know that Christ's death, that looked like the ultimate victory for Satan and the ultimate defeat for humanity was actually the opposite. That by the power of the Spirit of the living God, that breath returned to dead lungs, and Christ rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, and through that made a way for us to be perfectly united with God. Woo! Amen. We know that Christ in His power defeated death, defeated sin, defeated the curse, and that what looked like loss was ultimate victory. Yeah. We know that. They saw the kingdom come in power because they saw Christ raised from the dead. They saw Christ standing with the effects of the curse, putting their full strength and weight against him, and then brushing off of him because it had no power against him. This is the power of the kingdom. Not some army defeating some other army so some country can feel good about itself, but human beings freed from the tyranny of death and curse. Come on. This is our Jesus. And this is what He has promised us. He has made a way from death to life. He has made a way for the kingdom of this world to be destroyed. For, for the curse to be broken, for death to lose its sting, for sin to lose its ability to suffering. He's made a way for, for people disconnected from their Creator and suffering and running out of energy and dying and fading away, to be reconnected to their source of life, their Creator, and experience eternal bliss and connection and intimacy with Him. This is the power of the kingdom. And so in that, Christ invites his disciples. Go ahead, pick up your cross, follow after me. Let's go do this. It'll be worth it. And I love this line. Because ultimately, what the heck is this world? Are you ashamed of the cross? You don't want to go suffer and die? What do you gain? Dust and robes and sin and sickness. That's what you want to win? No. No. Take up your cross. Come with me. And in death, let's find victory. In, in loss, let's find gain. In in suffering, let's find life. This is the promise of our Jesus. Imagine this promise given to the hurt and huddled and persecuted church that Mark was written to. These Christians suffering under Nero's persecution. I don't want to be too graphic, but, but the things that were done to Christians and in the 60s and the 70s, the first century, were atrocious. Literally, secular historians marked them because they were so atrocious they were shocking, even in that day. Nero famously wrapped Christians in clothes filled with wax and alcohol and then tied them to stakes and lit them on fire to light his garden parties. And that was amongst the lighter things he chose to do to believers. To that church... The church in Rome who who saw Peter crucified upside down in front of his dead family and saw Paul beheaded. Who saw countless deacons and pastors and leaders tortured to death and fed to wild beasts. To that church, Mark says, in death and suffering there is life and victory. Mm -hmm. So take up your cross and follow after Christ. Do not be ashamed of him, because you may forfeit your this world, but you will gain your soul. Come on. We can feel the hope that this preaches to that church. Amen? My question is this, and this is where we're going to kind of end out our time today. What the heck does that say to us? What does it mean? 2018 in America to pick up your cross and fall after Christ. Because the reality is you're not going to leave this building and publicly proclaim your faith and give yourself up to Christ and have police officers come and kill you and nail you to a tree and publicly execute you. It's not the culture we live in. We live in a culture that values religious freedom. And so we're in this room celebrating and we have a website that people can Google it. So what does it mean? What does it mean to pick up your cross and follow after Christ in the richest, most wealthy, most comfortable, most religiously protected people in human history? What does that actually mean? Surely it means setting aside our comfort for the advancement of the gospel. Surely it means joyfully giving up social standing and sacrificing comforts and and aspects of the American dream and worships of wealth and retirement accounts and, and comforts for the sake of others. Surely it means that. But I feel like that's the bare minimum starting place. That's the place that all of us can go, well, of course... This was written to people being fed to wild animals. Of course I can be in an uncomfortable social situation because I care about Jesus. Of course I can get in trouble with HR because I pray with a coworker who's really hurting. Of course I can have a little less comfort in my retirement because I joyfully gave money to missions and hurting people and the homeless for 40 years of life. Of course, surely it means those things but is that all it means? Can we we truly say that that is the 2018 American analog to picking up a cross and carrying it to a hill where you were brutally tortured to death in front of everyone you know? and I don't say that to put guilt on you guys. I'm not trying to say, oh, we're all terrible Christians. That's not what I'm saying. God chose in His sovereignty to place you in this time, in this place, with this family, in this church, and we celebrate that. What a gift. What a gift to be the most religiously protected people in human history. My goodness. What a gift. You should never feel guilty for that. We should celebrate that. But what does it mean to pick up your cross and follow after Christ? What does that actually mean? To not put your mind on things of this world, but on the things of God. What does it mean to set aside your preconceived notions of what God would do to make your culture more comfortable and more healthy, so that you can be given over to the actual kingdom work? See, I think, I think there's this pendulum swing where we miss it on two sides. I think, I think in progressive and more liberal theological circles where we divorce the truth of the gospel from the reality of social action i think it misses some of this right where we we put our focus on social justice and we don't actually speak the truth of christ's hard words of life to people we don't actually challenge people with christ's call to live differently i think that's missing this But I think that's just one end of the pendulum. I think that just as greatly fooled are those who who take their Christianity and they confuse patriotism with spiritual maturity. Mm. And they believe that in order for America to succeed is for Christianity to succeed. Mm. And that if we fully give ourselves over to Republican ideals, then we have fully given ourselves over to Christ. Mm. I know that's a hard word for a lot of us to hear, But beloved, you know that's true if you search your heart. If you search your heart, you know that's true. Yes, this country is a gift. The most religiously protected people in human history. What a thing to celebrate. But beloved, Jesus is not American or Republican. And just like he wasn't overly concerned with Israel being freed from Roman oppression... I'm going to be honest with you. He's not overly concerned with America winning. He isn't. And that's hard for some of us to hear. And I'm not saying that to be a Christian means to be politically uninvolved. I'm not saying those things. You should be passionate about that. You should be involved. And you should engage your convictions in society and all those things. But I am saying this. the kingdom work is greater than that. The thing that Christ was actually doing, the work he was doing, was so much bigger than one country and its problems and its people. And beloved, the same is true today. The kingdom that Christ is calling us to is for all people and all tribes and all tongues and all places and all walks of life and all sinful habits and all beliefs. Christ desires that all people would bend their knee and submit to him and find life in him. So I would submit to us today, and this is where we're going to end out our time, I would submit to us today that yes, yes, of course, to pick up our cross and follow after for Christ is to sacrifice our comfort for the kingdom. Yeah. And, if, and if that's hard for you to wrap your, your, your hat around and it's hard for you to actually live out, congratulations, welcome to the American church. We're all really bad at it. But that's, that's of course true. Yes. We should freely give our resources and we should live simpler lives that, that don't have as many toys and as many comforts as the other people around us because we have we have given preference to our money to kingdom eternal things. Yes. Absolutely, We should be people who are willing to suffer social loss for the sake of the gospel. We should be people who have literally preferenced a schedule that gives us less time for things we enjoy so that we can get to know our neighbors and co-workers and family and invite them into our lives and proclaim the truth of the resurrected Christ on their spiritual death. We should absolutely do those things. But beloved, I would challenge you to say that to pick up your cross and follow Christ daily in the United States of America in 2018 means more. (laughs) It means actually putting yourself out there with people you disagree with, people that make you uncomfortable. It means engaging the world around us with the love of Christ. It means seeking out people that you know You disagree with. It means opening up your home to people that make your home a messy place. And I mean that physically and emotionally. It means opening yourself up to hurt and loss. It means prioritizing this family that God has created. In such a way that when people leave or move or go to different churches or stab you in the back, it actually hurts you because you've given yourself over to those people and you love them like Christ does. It means getting to know your neighbors who vote differently than you, live differently than you, have different sexual ethics than you, and have different opinions on the safety of human life than you. And loving them. Loving them in there and their boldness, and their sin, and their hurt, because you are just as a need of Christ as they are. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit RedTreeChurch.com for more information.